Well, thank you for uh, taking the time the, la- the last couple of weeks to walk through a very difficult subject. We've been discussing the theme of violence in Scripture and how that intersects with our faith. We've talked through the question of whether or not um, the Bible is primarily about this war God and whether God somehow is motivating us as believers into violence. And we've heard the charges from the new atheists and others who say, basically, our faith is inherently violent. I've had a number of you come approach me and say, you know what, like, thank you for talking about this. I've never had this, heard this in church, and I'm uh, always getting bombarded with this, either from my friends or my kids or, or from, from anywhere. And so I'm hoping that we're starting this discussion. It's a, bit, a much bigger discussion. I haven't had a chance to get into all the difficulties and all the problems. What I did hope is that we start to look together at the Bible, and there's a few things that we can see. The first one is that Jesus is a very transformative figure in the history of the world. As a, as a potential world leader, as a potential king, he decides to take the path of nonviolence and actually allows himself to be slaughtered to absorb the violence that was coming towards him and his followers. This is a remarkable new way. The next one is, even when we go in the Old Testament, we start to recognize, oh, wait a second, Yahweh himself, even though he lived in this barbaric, brutal age, he wasn't a uh, happy war god who just wanted to smite everything. In fact, he was a reluctant war god. He cried over those nations who were destroyed, even though they did great evil. He wept with them. He mourned over them. We also recognize that uh, David, who was a, this mighty warrior king, he always says, ah, you can't make my temple. I can't have my temple, my name associated with your bloody hands. And so I will have shalom man, peace man, build my temple. And my temple won't have all the murals of warfare. They're going to have natural states of the original creation. You're starting to see that God, even the Old Testament, is a, is a different God. And even when he went about war, his standards were different. He didn't trust, he wanted them not to trust in numbers and in weapons. He didn't allow them to have chariots. He didn't allow them to have war horses. In fact, he had a great feast for some enemies. We just have to realize that even the God of the Old Testament is a God who is changing sub- subversively the way that that culture would see war. And so we have this kind of picture here of a, of a subversive text in the Old Testament kind of lining up with Jesus and the Gospels and, and the New Testament. We see this picture of, of Jesus in the New Testament that's very appealing. However, when you read the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, you start to get some question marks. Wait a second, what's going on here? The question now arises again. Wait a second, this, this Jesus is a little more violent, is he? Than what I was expecting out of the gospel. Let's quickly go through the gospels again. I want to just show us the, the picture of Jesus and his stance towards violence. In the, in the, in the New Testament, he says, suffer Let the little children come to me. There's this whole theme of if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, you got to be innocent like little children. You can't have the bloody hands. My kingdom is this kingdom of innocence and and beauty and gentleness and self-control, all the fruits of the Spirit. We hear again when we're seeing the, 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 the scriptures, he says, you've heard it said this way, love your neighbors, but... You can fight wars against your enemies. I say, love your enemies. 
He's again pushing the ethics of the Old Testament into a new paradigm, saying, I want you to be a little different. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to pray for those who are cursing you. This is the Jesus of the New Testament. He also says, uh, I am the anti-Lamech Jesus. You're like, I don't remember that quote. What are you talking about? I'm the anti-Lamech Jesus. What happens when, he, when he's asked, how many times should you forgive? What does he say? 70 times seven. That number actually goes back all the way back to early in Genesis. Cain has a son or, and children, and, and one of his ancestors, I mean, one of his prodigy is a guy named Lamech. And Lamech kills someone. And Lamech says, hey, if Cain, who was a murderer, by the way, God didn't murder the murderer or kill the murderer. It's very interesting. He let him go. And, and Cain was given a special mark. And God said, if you kill him, you will be avenged seven times. Lamech stands up and sings a song and says, I'm a great, I, I killed someone. If it's Cain seven times, I will be avenged 70 plus seven times. Vengeance is mine, says Lamech. Jesus says, you need to forgive, not 70 plus seven, 70 times seven. This is the way of Christ, not the vengeance, personal vengeance, forgiveness. We see Peter show up with a sword that Jesus told him to have at the Garden of Gethsemane. Something's going to go down, bring your sword. And he strikes out and he cuts off an ear and Jesus rebukes him, put away your sword. Live by the sword, die by the sword. This is a new way of teaching again. Jesus has brought something very important to the human consciousness and into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. We are not to be a people who relish in the violence. Following Jesus meant turning away from violence. We have Simon the Zealot, who was a very violent killer of Roman soldiers, who now starts to follow Jesus. Um, here's a book, Craig actually loaned it to me, called Starring Scripture by Derek Flood. And there's, a, there's an interesting chapter on here about Paul and how Paul actually turns away from violence when he follows Jesus. Because you remember, he was locking people up, throwing them in prison. He was using violence. And then Paul is the one who's like talking all about the fruits of the Spirit. Something happened to Paul's heart when he met Jesus. He changed. In the New Testament, Jesus' violent death was intended to absorb and defeat the violence of this broken world. I truly believe that. The cross is the anti-violent way. It's the, the way it switches everything around. And that's the beautiful thing that we love about Jesus. When we talk about Jesus, we talk about peace, the Prince of Peace. And yet, we have to work with Jesus, the apocalyptic warrior. One day, Revelation tells us Jesus will come with a sword on a war horse. What? Not even allowed to have horses. What's going on? Tremper Longman III, a great scholar of the Old Testament. Wouldn't you like to have like, the third on your name somewhere else? It really gets official when you get to the third. He talks about this. He says, the apocalyptic Jesus is just as violent and bloody as, or actually probably more violent and bloody than the Old Testament. 
This is in a book called Show Them No Mercy, Four Views on God and Canaanite Genocide by Stanley Gundry. I, if you're looking more into this, that's a great book to read because you get to hear different people's perspectives on how you deal with these texts. But he's saying Revelation is just as violent or more violent than the Old Testament. Ah, we've just worked through all this. What are we going to do with this Jesus? Now, I will say off the bat, I disagree with his assessment here. But I do want to let his words sink in, and I want the text to sink in, and us to kind of experience what he's talking about here. So let us begin with Revelation 19, verse 11, and we'll read through it together. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter, says Psalms 2.8. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Oh, this is a, a little different than the Gospels. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and the mighty of horses and the riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. What? This is getting gruesome. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who had performed the signs on its behalf. And with these signs, he had deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. You don't hear that in church too often, that passage, that Jesus. And we're trying to figure out, how does this work? First of all, he's getting up on a, on a mighty horse. I got a picture here of a here he is. He's getting up on his horse. Can't quite see it, but in the back, you got all these guys on their horses. They got the American flag, of course. Right? Ah, here we go. I remember speaking with an awesome older lady who followed Jesus, and I remember talking with her, and she said to me, You know what? If Jesus comes back now, I'm ready. I'll pick up that machete, or I'll pick up that. AK-47, whatever I need to. The holy hand grenade, whatever it is. <laughs> I'm ready. And I just thought they're looking like, do you really 
think Jesus needs you to pick up a gun or want you to pick up a gun and get on a horse and ride into this battle with him. And like, he needs us, right? Re- recruitment. Let's sign up for the Forest View Army. And... Does this passage encourage Christians to enact violence? I'll throw that out there. Just make you think about it. Does it encourage us to become part of violence? Mark Driscoll has an interesting quote. He usually does, if anything he quotes. He says this, and I just want to let this think on you and kind of hit you. In Revelation, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg, right? Lord of Lords, King of Kings. So you guys recognize he's, he's, he's tatted up. A sword in his hand and the commitment to make someone bleed. That guy I can worship. I can't worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I can't worship a guy that I can beat up. You hear this? He's saying, I I need my Jesus to be UFC. Are we supposed to get prepped with weapons for Armageddon? Do we need to recognize we need to have this picture? Let me just throw a picture up of two of the people who are involved in this passage, okay? This is the beast one and two, the beast from the earth and the beast from the sea. Remember, they get thrown into the lake of fire. Probably feel a little best bad for them now. This, this is the passage. This is the picture, if you want to see a picture of what's happening, these guys are part of this fight. Now, I hope you're starting to think, I don't know if there's actually like an actual dragon monster with 12 heads at the end of the world. I hope some of you are thinking, like, eh, is that really what we're supposed to get a picture of? Now, who are these people? Or, or they might be people, they might be forces. But there's lots of questions about this, right? Who are the beasts? Well, the beasts are those who set up against Jesus. There's the beast who gets up and basically has everyone follow him. There's the, there's the second beast who cause everyone to worship the beast. We call the second beast actually the false prophet. And these are responsible for all these cries throughout the book of Revelation. You have these, these people dressed in white, but they've been, had their, their heads cut off. They've been beheaded. They are the martyrs of Jesus who are crying, how long, Jesus, how long are you going to allow this violence against us to continue? How long are you going to let this injustice exist? These are the beasts that have been slaughtering people. We've just learned in chapter 18 that Babylon went down. Babylon was also one of the killers of the people, and Babylon's gone down, and everyone was actually, the, the kings of the earth they were like, yeah, we got Babylon, and now we're going to get Jesus. Remember what we're dealing with here, we are dealing with the book of Revelation, which is apocalyptic literature. This is all about symbolism and imagery, okay? So we got to be careful about making this a, a, a real picture. These are visions and dreams. We need to read it literarily, not literally. Just like so many other allegories or pictures we've seen before, um, Pilgrim's Progress, these type of, we don't expect that, that's not, we're not taking a real picture. If we take it liter- literally, I want to give you a picture of it, just so we can start to understand what it looks like. If we, if we took this literally, 
it would look very gruesome. And I realized I can't really go really graphic literal because that would be kind of gross. So what I went, I decided to go with Lego, Lego Bible, okay? <laughs> There's the kings of the earth. They look really mean, don't they? They're from all over. Behind them is the beast, because remember the beast has the horns and the crowns and everything, so he's got those guys. Got the dragon on the side there as well. All the different warriors, these are the kings. This is, this is the battle. And then Jesus shows up with a giant army, and what happens? Starts killing people with the sword in his mouth. How about you? That's gotta, you got to be a really gifted warrior to do that, I think. Like, you're just, you're just running through people, just head going back and forth. You ride on the horse at the same time, right? And this is what it ends up looking like at the end. The kings of the earth, eaten by the birds. Let's think in a little bit. Remember what the beasts looked like, how, how they were gone? When we start to see this, when we see this, do we start to ask ourselves, wait a second, where did the good stuff about Jesus go? All the good stuff about the, the temple and the peace and the lack of bloody hands, the taking feasts instead of weapons. What about the banning war horses and chariots? Is Jesus just a war god after all? Now again, I would say, let's not take this literally. This is a picture of justice. This is an image of evil destroyed. Apocalyptic literature is very interesting. If you, anyone ever read any of it? Read a book of Enoch, Ezra, Baruch. You start to read apocalyptic literature. You start to realize that you can read Revelation differently because you have to see the type of genre is written. And there's a lot of apocalypses in Jesus' day. And so this book is kind of taking that type of genre up. And I, and, and I want to point something out about apocalyptic literature. It is heavily literary. Here is a, let's just look at this. This is the, the whole New Testament in my Bible, okay? This is the book of Revelation in my Bible. Just that little slip, okay? You see that, the difference? This has two-thirds of the uses of the word like. It was like this, and it was like that, and it was like this, and it was like that. Look at that. Two-thirds of the New Testament use of imagery is in the book of Revelation. The rest of this, we know Jesus says that kingdoms like a heaven, he uses imagery all the time, but the book of Revelation is like imagery on steroids. It's the whole thing, it's just images. It's pictures and trying to, so we gotta be careful to, to not turn this into a graphic image of exactly what we think in our mind, kind of turn it into a film. It's this image trying to show us a picture the apocalyptic genre is all about the defeat of the power of evil in human society. The wars, the killing. It's basically the slaughter of all the innocents. It's basically justice is here. That's what apocalyptic literature says. Justice is here. And it's very black and white. There's no grays. It's like the good guys and the bad guys. And it brings comfort to those who are under persecution. That's what apocalyptic literature is for. 
So what's the difference here then? I want to kind of point something. If we have this apocalyptic genre, is there any difference between the book of Revelation and these books? What's the difference between this Jesus and the Old Testament that we were talking about with the, the idea of, and that old culture of slaughtering and such? Is there any difference? Does Revelation do anything different? I want to point out seven things that I think make a difference. The first, uh, well, we'll get into, the first thing is that there's no battle at all. It's not actually a battle. Do you notice that? There's no, like, exchanging of thrusts and lance and... It doesn't describe any actual battle. That's interesting. And it's all very one-sided. It says, like, basically one sword, it's all done. One sword will fell them. There's one tiny little weapon. Next slide, sir. One little tiny weapon. A sword and a mouth. And an awkward weapon at that. One tiny little sword somehow takes out all the armies of the earth. These are all the kings of the earth. They're coming with all their weapons. I mean, if you're thinking of it, if you want to put it in today's age, they're coming with their missiles and their tanks and the, right? Or back in those days, their chariots and they're coming with, they're coming loaded. And here Jesus shows up. He has a giant army, but he has this one sword and this one sword wins the fight. Number two, there's only one warrior in this battle. There's no single other mention of any other entity fighting in this war. Or, or you, don't, you don't hear any about the weapons firing back and forth. All you hear about is Jesus. Now, that's really interesting because in this day and age, you got to remember, there's Roman mythology everywhere. These people, uh, the Christians, are, are working amongst the people who know their mythology really well. And in mythology, your gods show up and they start fighting in the battle with you. If you ever seen any of those Clash of the Titans or these type of uh, mythology movies, you recognize that the idea that Roman, the Roman idea was that there, you could actually have your god show up on the battlefield and start fighting. Or they would kind of help certain fighters fight. However it worked, there was this kind of battle going back and forth. And here what we see, there's only one person who does anything, and it's Jesus, and he gets the last word. A third difference is, uh, especially, uh, I want to point this out, compared to a lot of our pictures of Revelation, there is only the kings of the earth and all the evil armies versus Jesus and his group. Sometimes, I, I've heard this kind of, the Armageddon, we turn it into like, USA versus Russia. Don't we? Like, that's what we think. Like, it's different, which army, are, which country are you in? Your country's going on God's side, and these countries are on Satan's side, and they come and fight each other. Actually, it's all... The nations lining up against Jesus. I never was taught that. All of the nations come up and fight against Jesus, the kings of all the earth, the beast and the false prophet. And they get captured. It doesn't talk about how they get they're just they're captured. Number four, a big difference is the sword is not in Jesus' hand. That's what Driscoll said. It was in his hand. No, actually, it's not in his hand. And all, all the pictures I've, I've looked up, so many of them have Jesus coming with a sword in his hand. It's like, that's not what it says. The sword is in his mouth, which I hope immediately helps us recognize this is imagery. I cannot fathom an actual literal sword in Jesus' mouth. But I wanted to, to give it a good look. So that looks dangerous right there. 
That's the medieval picture. Here's a giant one. Like, whoa, watch out, Jesus. Like, where are you pointing that thing, right? You got the... <laughs> this one's more real. Like, that's what you're talking about. Real human with the real, like... And then finally, I have a... Notice how the sword is kind of invisible, ghost-like. This is more the imagery that I think is going on in Revelation. You, got this, you do have this apocalyptic figure, blazing, bright, strong... It's not a wimpy Jesus, but the sword isn't, isn't a real sword. It is his word. It is the truth. Jesus shows up and kills him with the truth. Destroys the whole edifice, the whole system that's against God. The truth with one word. In Isaiah 11:4 it says, "With the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked." So what are we getting at here? Second Thessalonians 2:8, "Destroy with the breath of his mouth." There's always been this picture that somehow God isn't going to be into weapons and fighting. He's, he's going to speak his word and it's going to be done with. Difference number five is that Jesus is called the, the Word of God. So in the end here, Jesus is the Word of God. He is the truth. He will end up killing evil. He will not allow it to continue. And that is actually an important hope that we have. I hope you hope that evil ends. Number six, there's no saints on earth who get to join the fight. I've already mentioned this before, but there's no mention of anyone who's jumping into the battle. So sorry, Grandma. You know, Jesus doesn't need our help. He still says to us, live by the sword, die by the sword. And you got to remember, all the saints in Revelation are martyrs. They're all getting slaughtered. That's why they're crying out, and that's why they're waiting for Jesus to return like this. This is not condoning us getting violent. Because number seven, the battle is already won on the cross. Jesus has already finished it. I think there's a little hint in there. There's a part where it says that Jesus shows up and his robe is dipped in blood. And there's a big scholarly debate about this. Whose blood is it? Is it the blood of his victims from cutting off heads with his sword? Or is it his blood? And I gotta say, the more I read, the more I study picture, and you read the whole book of Revelation together, the more I'm convinced that this is Jesus showing up. He's already showing up. He hasn't even fought anyone yet, and there's blood on his robe. Notice all the other angels have no blood on them whatsoever. They're all white, pristine, clean. There's a reason that Jesus has this blood, is to show that he is in solidarity with the martyrs who have been slaughtered. He is their king. He's coming like them. And he's gonna make things. Right. These are seven differences from our original pictures of what happens with violence in the Bible. I guess there's seven differences to me that make a difference. I, I read the apocalyptic literature and I, and I see what is happening in this passage. And I know some people, it's a hard text to deal with. I think we have to be honest as Christians. What does our Bible say? It says this. How do we process this when we're trying to talk about violence? We recognize this. I think the point of this passage is... Evil is defeated. Jesus is going to take 
all of the evil you see all around you, all the violence, corruption, and it is going to get finished. And when we read it, it might be a little, ooh, that's a hard passage to read. But if we're really honest, I, I like to think this. We, we sit here and we might judge the book of Revelation and it's, you know, the birds eating the flesh. And we're like, oh, that's a little. But we go back home and a lot of us turn on our TVs and we watch lots of things. It might be a police show. And when we see the, the guy there holding the gun, he's going to shoot the innocent hostage and then he gets killed. We, we we're inside kind of cheer. Yes, good. Save the good people. Bad person died. It's not that you want, you'd rather be captured or whatever, but, but you start to recognize that there's a part of us that recognizes that evil has to be taken out. And we go to our Marvel Cinematic Universe movies and we see that to, to take out evil forces in the world, sometimes in this earth, unfortunately, we have to have things like police forces and stuff. But one thing I know is that we always crave the day when we'll see it all in all the violence end. One of the biggest questions that I have come to me all the time when, I, when the people are trying to wrestle with their faith is, why is there so much evil? Why does God let it keep going? That's what they call it all in Revelation. How long, Lord? How long are you going to let this continue? And here we have the answer. Just a little longer. At some point, Jesus is going to show up and he's going to shut the whole thing down. The innocent aren't going to be allowed to be slaughtered without justice. Justice is coming. God will end the violence. He will end evil. The great forces behind this corruption, the dragon and the beast, all this, all the, whatever's helping power, the human powers of violence, this is all going to come crashing down. Imagine if you're a Christian. Like, for us, it's really easy sometimes to judge some of these passages in Revelation. Like, oh, it's a little too violent for me. Imagine if you're in China or Syria right now and your brother or sister is slaughtered for following Jesus. You read this passage, you're like, okay, God, I'll hold on. Someday, you're going to take it down. Someday, the violence will stop. And it's not a long, drawn-out battle. I want to point out, Jesus isn't, I don't think, relishing violence. He doesn't love violence in this passage. It's not a long battle where he's doing all these moves and stuff. This is like one, one thing ends it all. He's just like, we're done. And this is our Jesus. He's not the wimpy Jesus, but he's not the murderer, bloodthirsty Jesus. This is the justice Jesus. The Jesus who's going to make things right again. And this messed up world we recognize has to end. When we talk about injustice on this global scale, we just ask, what does justice look like? What will it change? And so here we have an image of a group of people saying to God, we hate you. We're coming to get you. Notice they're, they're, they're getting armies and they're, they're coming to meet Jesus. They want to fight him. We hate you, Jesus. That's what's being said. And Jesus comes with a word and stops it all. Jesus will take out evil. Now, what will this really look like in the end? Who knows? That's what I'd say. How is God actually going to end it? This is the picture he wants, a picture there's other pictures in the New Testament as well of what it looks like when justice comes to town. And God is open to doing this however he's going to do it. 
And I love this book of Revelation because we just saw all this happen. We see the kings of the earth. They're on the ground. It's kind of gory. But then something really interesting happens. The kings of the earth, it says, will not kill forever. Not only that, something's going to happen to the kings of the earth where even the kings of the earth are redeemed. Now, the kings of the earth in the book of Revelation represent all the human forces who are wicked and evil and are killing others and murdering and hurting the poor and everything. You can think of injustice. That's the kings of the earth. That's who they are in the book of Revelation. But something miraculous happens in the book of Revelation. Yes, they've all been killed here. They join the beast and they're they're destroyed. But the kings of the earth at some point actually enter the kingdom of God. It's very interesting. Let me read Revelation 21, verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. Yes, finally, the nations have the light. And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Whoa, this is the first mention positive of the kings of the earth in the whole book of Revelation. On no day will its gate ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does, not, who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Someday, the kings of the earth, in whatever imagery this is, end up not being shameful or deceitful. They get to go into the city of God. That's a beautiful picture, my friends. The enemies are loved at the end. That's my Jesus from the Gospels. That's the Jesus who forgives and loves. He makes right. He makes everything just. But somehow he brings even the kings of the earth into the fold. And so we can say, if they're redeemed, we can be redeemed. If they're loved, how much more can we trust that we are loved who are calling out to him, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord? He is a God who loves his enemies and brings them around to himself so that their names could be in the book of life also. So, even so, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, Not a different apocalyptic Jesus, but the Jesus who is the slain lamb of God who absorbs all the hatred and the violence of the world. Amen.